Coming up on another episode of the Front Page Football Podcast, Week 4, Women's World Cup Wrap-Up, Cody Ajada, Matt Olsen, don't go anywhere. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Front Page Football Podcast, the last World Cup episode that we do. I know, so sad it's coming to an end, not just because the greatest sporting event in Australia's history since the Olympics is over, but because this will be the last time you hear me and Matt's voices in terms of the World Cup. Obviously, we'll be back from Front Page Dub very soon after this, but Matt, first of all, how are you doing today? Yeah, I, we were just saying off air that there's actually an air of, uh, you know, wanting to dissociate from things because it has been, don't get me wrong, it's been an incredible month. Um, we love football and we'll always love football, but it's just that element of like, I could use a break. <laughs> I could just get away with it. Like, yeah, maybe we'll, we'll watch some Premier League. We'll see how Andrew's doing, but like, it's time to just kind of get away from it for a bit. Well, look, after this, we do have a little bit of a break. I say that fully well knowing. There's Australia Cup on right after the World Cup's done. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. Football, and I mean, never sleeps. It's already, it's already been on. You know, I've already gone and covered the game in WA. So, like, you know, football will always keep happening. But it's just like the mental side of it, you just kind of want to get away from. Well, at least you got to cover the Australia Cup in WA while you had the chance because I don't think it's going to be coming there anytime soon, is it? No, it won't be. Um, which is... Yeah, shut up, Cody. Shut up. <laughs> Oh, man, for anyone that doesn't know, both NPL sides in WA crashed out of the cup in the first round, right after Perth Glory got smacked by MacArthur in the qualifying, who then lost to an NPL club. Not great times in WA for state-level football, but hey, that's the NPL, that's the beauty of the cup. It may be part of the reason why we love it. Obviously, Matt's not feeling that love at the moment, but we're not talking about Australia Cup, we're talking about the World Cup, the biggest tournament going on in world football at the moment. And unfortunately, if we want to talk about teams being knocked out of tournaments, the Matildas have unfortunately found that same fate going down 3-1 to England. Look, was it our best performance? No. Was it as bad as some people on social media making it out to be? Probably not. Matt, your thoughts on the game? Look, um, lightning doesn't strike twice and we were certainly never going to win this game in the fashion that we did at uh, Brentford. Um, so I always went into it thinking that, you know, with the way that both teams sort of play on the back foot and, you know, the, the tense nature of these types of games that the Matildas were always going to appear out of their depth. They just had to hold up the guard and be resilient. The fact of the matter was, you know, there's a great move in that, in that first half um, that led to the goal. And, you're sort of, I, I understand Sam Kerr scored this absolute banger. We've had a moment of jubilation that we will never, ever, ever forget in our lives. But you always felt that England had it in the bag. They, they just did. They're just a better team, um, a better world class team. And you can't really ask for much more, can you? Well, look, one thing that I kind of was able to take solace in the fact after the game, as much as it would have been nice to see the Matildas progress and be in a World Cup final. On home soil, we're going to see the two, probably the two best teams in world football play a World Cup final. It's, it's a proper World Cup final. And 
Look, it's going to be a spectacle. Staying on the Matildas a little bit, though, and in the last episode we did, the little bonus episode we did, to celebrate the fact that the Matildas had reached this stage, you said it would be a disappointment if they didn't make the final, if they didn't get past England. Are, are you disappointed now? I was wondering how many seconds it would take before you brought this back up. and You have to know is, I was going to bring that up straight yeah, away. Yeah, you know, the fact, fact of the matter is, of course there is, there is a massive element where it's disappointing. I'm allowed to say that England are a better team, and I'm also allowed to say that from a Matilda's perspective, we don't know when we're going to be here again. Um, and from that, and from that angle, um, you know, to not capitalize on a semi-final performance on home soil. Yeah. Yeah. There's certainly an era of, of that's disappointing. Um, but there is equally an era of, of we're really proud of the team. Um, and I, and again, I, I understand there's hypocrisy in that, but both can still be equally true. Um, and I think that's the point that I was sort of trying to originally make. But came out, it came out more in the air of a sweeping statement than anything else. Likewise, yes, though, yes, you'll, you'll know, I said it about the group stage performance as well. And I was only airing, the, I was only airing the same thing. You know, we had the expectations that we'd go and, and, uh, and finish top of the group in, you know, whatever way that we could on home soil. And we did, but, you know, there, there was, there was, um, it really basically needed one of the better, better performances. Um, that you'll ever see from the Matildas in order to get there. And, and there's still an element of me on, on the campaign where like, like it's a semi-final, you don't, it's a semi-final appearance. You don't scoff at it, but I still think to make it out, like everything with sunshine and rainbows for the whole campaign is, is not entirely true. And, and look, I think there's also an element of, we realize now in the long term what it's actually going to take to win a world cup and that we have standards now that we've still got to improve if we actually want to be the world's best um, with with a generation of players between now and 2027 that are going to leave, you dare have to say that, that things are going to become, you know, quite eye-opening in that aspect, but not like it. Cody, understand I'm not, I'm not ringing alarm bells and saying it's doomsday. I'm just saying that, you know, there are still things that we should be critical of. I look, I'm probably going to say the same point as you, but I'm going to look at it a different way. Yeah, look, we've seen what it takes to be the world's best and to compete at that level. But if anything, it could almost give us a roadmap to get there. We understand now we can probably lobby, lobby the government a little bit better to say, hey, look, if we want these scenes, if we want to be in this position again, we're not going to get there with what we have now. We need to improve. We need to improve everything from the grassroots up. I think in the long term, it could actually be a good thing. You know, obviously, it's, it hurts that we had a semi-final on home soil and we weren't able to progress after that. Of, but in reality, at least personally, in my in my view, I wasn't almost expecting it. Like I was happy to be in the semi-final, and yeah, look, I know to some people that might sound like, oh yeah, we're just happy to be here for the ride. But you know, the Matildas have made history. It's no small feat to be the top four teams in the world. Like there's still a lot that we can take from this, and. I think there is still a lot to build on too. I understand we've got a generation of players leaving after this uh, after this World Cup as well, whether it be straight away or a little bit further down the track. But there's still a lot of good young players coming through. We'll start seeing the likes of Mary Fowler, Cooney Cross, Courtney Nevin, Charlie Grant, even though Charlie Grant's the person ahead of her is pretty much the same age. But there's a lot of players that are going to turn into world-class footballers if they aren't already over the next four years. There is still a lot to kind of take in and actually go, okay, yeah, we've, we can still look positive moving forward. 
Yeah, of course. Um, and you know, you mentioned the, the fact that sort of they've had this whole idea of, uh, you know, the under 20s being strengthened through their World Cup performance and the funding that that's brought as well. You mentioned, you know, the introduction of the 23s program simply because we're that stacked for talent. We want to get a 23s team set up to just sort of go around and tour the world and play all these games. I mean, yeah, there's, there's important things happening behind the scenes, but to say that the generation of 27 will shape up as good as, as what this golden generation has, you know, I just uh, I have some, some doubts about it. And well, I mean, it's too early to really bring the conversation up because we don't know the intricacies of the talents that will be involved and for the players that are younger, how good they'll actually become, right? Um, so you know, it's just, it is just something to bear in mind for now and something that I, I can't help but think about at this moment. But it'll be interesting because look, yeah. you say you don't know who's going to be the 2027. You don't know if there's a 13, 14, 15 year old that in the next four years is just going to burst onto the scene and really take us forward, maybe in the same way Mary Fowler well, did not too to long put it, ago. To put, it in to put it in immense perspective, when like Daniel Azani was the hottest prospect, if you tapped anyone on the shoulder in Russia and said, oh, by the way, we're going to be playing Argentina in the round of 16, and some uh, you know kid named Garang Kual is going to just about score the equaliser, everyone would be like, what? <laughs> so you have a point. <laughs> and yeah, of course. And Grant Qual at that stage was 13 years old. And you look at it now, Indiana Dos Santos is someone who's 15 years old. Who knows where she's going to be in four years. And maybe in four years' time, we have another Indiana Dos Santos come through. And I think the Good most shout. special part about this, that person that could be that breakout star in four years could be inspired by Wednesday night to really progress their career. So, or that maybe that person will be waiting until, God, I don't know, 2031. 2035, I hope I've got the World Cup years right. But you don't know when that effect is going to come about, but I think the exciting thing is you know it's going to happen. So whenever it happens, I think we've just got to be thankful for it, really. But look, we'll talk about the actual game itself, because, you know, the Matildas, they've done us proud this whole tournament, but that probably wasn't their best performance. I know you said it before, England's first goal, very, very nice, smooth, very well taken. The second and third, probably a little bit lapses in judgment. Unfortunately, Ellie Carpenter made quite a hash of trying to clear the ball for the second goal. Then the third one, it does come down to how the Matildas play. We got caught out a little bit at the back. Midfield, a little bit slow in transition. Uh, Steph Catley not catching another runner. And unfortunately, Claire Hunt having to step out of the back line to try and cover the ball. But a question I want to pose to you, because I think it's a valid question considering how the tournament shaped up, especially in the second half. Is that purely just a thing of individual errors? And mind you, both options that I'm going to say are probably true here. Is this game just down individual errors, or is there a sense that this side was burnt out? Yeah, well, uh, Cody, it was what I was always going to mention in relation to what you're saying about the, the goals and the way that they were conceded. Look, I, I, I think when you factor in that never in a tournament scenario, never in, you know, a monthly period, but they realistically have ever, especially in women's football, because it's been so under undervalued and under-resourced for so long and the schedules just aren't anywhere near as intense, right? How many women in that team would have realistically played five or six games in that period, considering because of the third-place play, they're playing a seventh game anyway? It's nuts. You know, they'd have, they'd have never put that strain on their bodies before, and you can only be so ready for something that you've never experienced before physically, right? It's the kind of thing where you need to push yourself. It needs to take time. Um, granted, you know, there are obviously anomalies in, of, of players who step up in World Cup campaigns, go the whole distance, win World Cup. So I know it's happened before, both men and women, but 
yeah, to say that someone like an Ellie Carpenter, for example, and, and uh, you know, some of these more experienced campers, you Steph Catleys as well, to say that, that even though they've done some great things at domestic level, that they'd have ever experienced something like that before on them physically, uh, you know, it's, it's probably a bit of a stretch. And I think that ultimately it's, it's part of the reason why some of those goals were so sloppy in the way that they were, that they were conceded. And look, I don't know enough about the domestic infrastructure in terms of the overall schedule. Obviously, the, the uh, Champions League is a thing in the in the in the women's football as well. But I, I dare say that that England were just that bit better prepared because their domestic schedules are just that bit more intense, and and they've been used to that for a higher, uh, you know, they're used to that higher level of football for a longer period of time, and because of how their schedule goes about it, so. Yeah, I, I mean, I would just, I would be mindful of the fact that England are always going to be that little bit fitter for that occasion. Well, you look at it as well. A lot of the Matildas are playing in that English environment, but they're the ones that probably stood up to it better than anyone else. You mentioned Steph Catley. I don't know. Well, there was that one moment towards the end of the game, but you're talking 83rd, 84th minute in an intense semi final by then in a situation where we've started throwing numbers forward and we were naturally going to get caught out and outnumbered in, in, a, in a counter-attacking situation eventually. But the others that you mentioned, uh, Katrina Gorey and Cooney Cross in the midfield, they're both playing in Sweden. Schedule isn't as intense. Ellie Carpenter, not even talking about the French schedule, the fact that she's only just returned to football some months ago, that's obviously going to play some part considering it was an ACL injury before that, but not playing in that English environment where they've got two cups of Champions League in a league to look after. I think that's, if there's one thing that England do really well, it's actually I know on the men's side of things, they say they play too many games, but in the women's side, because the league is that little bit shorter, they only play 22 games a season. You can get that feeling of an intense schedule, but they also have a break in the middle of the season. They also have a longer, um, mid, oh, not mid season break, a longer off season break. They manage to kind of incorporate both where players get adequate rest and also the chance to, in, um, experience some intense schedules. So. Yeah, of course, England were going to be well prepared for that. And then you combine that with the fact that every single player in that England side isn't just playing in the WSL in the top division week in, week out regularly, but also playing for the top teams in those competitions. And if they're not playing the WSL, they're going to your Bayern Munichs, your Barcelonas. This is a world-class side. I think that's something that maybe has been lost. I won't say on football media, more mainstream media who, you know, maybe jumped on the bandwagon a little bit as, as, the Matilda started doing good and thought we were gonna we were outright gonna go and win it. The reality is, facing this England side was always gonna be an uphill battle, both in terms of fitness, quality, even tactically. Serena Weigman, fantastic coach. We're gonna get into her a little bit later. But you know, this is always gonna be an uphill battle for the Matildas, and the fact that we were able to stay in it for so long, that Sam Kerr was able to produce a moment of magic that we can take forever. There is still a lot that we can take from this tournament and Look, we'll move on. There is a couple other things that I do want to talk about. The first one, speaking of managers, thoughts on Tony? Because, you know, I know there are comparisons compared to other Matilda's coaches in the past, but this is a man that now has taken us to a, an Olympic semi-final, a World Cup semi-final. His main roles coming into this um national team setup was, one, to kind of improve the culture around it, and two, make sure we did get this stream of young players coming through. The reality is, on paper, he's ticked just about every box he could, but there is still this air, this sense that, you know, can we really trust him long term? 
it was it was an extremely rocky road. Um, and not everyone not everyone is going to acknowledge that and be aware of that. But the fact of the matter is, from people on the inside, people people remember there were some really sketchy times ahead. Need I mention the seven 0 loss to Spain? Uh, need I mention Cody that under Tony Gustafson, if the World Cup wasn't in Australia and New Zealand, the Matildas would not have qualified for the World Cup. Well, we wouldn't have qualified automatically. We would have been through the Asian playoffs. There was still that option. Well, they, they would have, they would have still got what, like fifth in the playoff <laughs> because they lost the quarterfinal one nil to South Korea. I mean, yeah, okay, fair play, fair play. You got me, but you know, like, let's not act like. Tony I'm not going to say that's is, good enough. Of course, like we should be no, qualifying no, 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 automatically. No, 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 you're, you're technically correct. So. <laughs> It just for me, Cody, look, I will always respect and love him for his manner, for the personality that he has. Um, and you know, you're right. He did achieve what he achieved at the World Cup and the Olympics, respectively. He is still for that level, of course, a world class football manager. Um, and you, know, you have to thank him and you have to tip, tip your hat to him and you have to, you know, really love, love what he did in the meantime. But. Let's not act like it was all, you know, one big happy run under Tony G and that he's like this legend or anything because it's not the case. No, and I think that's the, that's the point I'm trying to make as well because, like I said, like he ticked all the boxes on paper. You can't argue that at the end of the day. It's not like we're in a position where it's going to be like, oh, you haven't done this, this or this. You've got to, you're, you're, we're giving you the sack. There's been some incredibly poor times under him. Where, like, obviously, I'm not going to beat around the bush. The Asian Cup for one. Uh, Spain 7-0, as much as it was an understrength squad, that's not something that's going to win you a lot of fans. And even in this World Cup, the games that the Matildas didn't perform well in, the games that, that, that we eventually lost, a lot of it does, you know, even if it's not directly, indirectly does come back on him. You know, you talk about the Nigeria game, no one's going to say he got his tactics right in that game. I don't think there was really any poor individual performances in that match, but the players are doing what they were asked of, asked of them you you can question what they were being asked at the end of the day. And then you look at the England game, there was almost a sense we were outrunning. It comes from the fact that there were at least four, five, maybe even six players on the, on, on the field at that time that had, if they hadn't played every single minute of the World Cup, were very, very close to it. So, you know, I guess you can kind of question his squad management there. Does he have the faith in some of those fringe players Someone like Chidiak maybe could have gotten a little bit more of a run. There are definitely questions around that, but how much can we really force those questions when he's still ticking boxes in terms of what he's achieved? Yeah, I um, look, I understand that I just was sort of talking about the long-term future, and I understand that it is a conversation worth having about Tony Gustafson. What I would say is. He's probably, he probably is worth sending to the 2024 Paris games. It's only in 11 months time. So, and of course they play those, they play those initial games of the group stage before the opening ceremony of the, of the Olympics. So we're sort of thinking like, like sort of like. You're talking early to mid July next year. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking like the first week of July is when those games will be played. I mean, you, there's no point. There's no point, especially when he has it. He has ticked the boxes on paper, like you say. There's no point in rebuilding the system in 11 months. What does what does it do? So, 
I'd, I'd give him that liberty, but in terms of 2027, and especially because the generation will end up shaping up so different, I'd say move him on after the Paris games. Yeah. Okay. I, because but- I still think, I still think that, the, that there's time for sort of the Tony era to be completely surmised by the World Cup itself. It is what he was appointed for. Um, and, you know, there is always the air of, of, you know, oh, geez, I, I hate to, to bring it up, but like, I, I, I wouldn't mind questioning, like, what if it was Stadge still here? You know, what if Stadge had built this legacy for himself the whole time? Um, and yeah, that, that's when I think if we, if we brought an Australian back in after the 2024 Paris games with a younger, newer Matildas, for the, the 27 World Cup, I think that would be the best possible choice for um, the growth and development of uh, women's football. I see what your point there is, and if you had to, if I had to throw anyone in that kind of frame, someone I would like to see eventually take the Matilda's job would probably be Leah Blaney, under 20s yep. um, <laughs> Matilda's coach. I was about fantastic I was, I was style of play. Like that, that would be a great long term successor. But if I had to throw a hypothetical to you. And look, this is a what if. You're probably not going to be happy with me throwing something like this again. But let's just say Tony goes to the 2024 Olympics. In our minds, it may be his last time as as a Matildas coach at a major tournament. What if he goes and gets on the podium? What if he goes and gets a silver medal? What if he goes and get a, gets a gold medal? What do we do then? Do we keep him? Do it? Does is that justified to keep him on, even if maybe things tactically yeah. still don't look so great? Yeah. I would, I would say, I did just, I had a side comment about Leo Blaney, but I'll, I'll wrap it, I'll wrap the point back around. The, the question then doesn't necessarily come about, you know, what they do at a boardroom level. I think it actually becomes, well, Tony, what do you want? Do you want to build, build this whole thing from top to bottom, or are you happy to call it a day? And, we don't know the answer to that question. It's a hypothetical scenario in 12 months' time. He wouldn't even know the answer to that question. But Interesting, actually, because... I I actually really like the shout for someone like a Leah Blaney after Paris. Because think about think about the stars of that under-20 team in Costa Rica. Um, you know, they were under her already. And I actually think what's really nice about it is... She's female. <laughs> like simply put, she's she's female, and that that would that would be a really nice thing to see. Would be an Aussie female entrusted with the, the Matilda's job um, at that level, and and speak to the fact that um, you know not only can Australian managers crack it anywhere in the world now, as we're seeing with you know a name like Ange Postecoglou, but to say that actually now there's there's a time for Australian female football managers to to become. Uh, you know, stalwarts at that level, and, and Leah Blaney would be a very, very good place to start. Yeah, I wouldn't even look at it from a gender perspective. I just think if I had to look at Australian managers that are available now that can implement a positive style of play and work with bringing young players into the side, you know, she ticks those boxes, whether she's male or female, whatever. You know, I think no matter what, how which way you look at it, she's probably the best option for it. But look, that's probably the last we'll talk about the coaching situation. Sweden, we do have a third-place playoff to play. There is still one more game. You know, we've spoken about the fact that there probably hasn't been enough rotation in this tournament. We have questioned a little bit about the tactics. Is there anything you want to see out of this Sweden game in terms of who you want to see play 
what you want to see from the team. What 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 should we be seeing in this game? It cast my mind back to that day in Wellington that Sweden put five past an Italy side that by all reports were growing a lot and had actually looked kind of good. And the reason that happened was they were an absolute weapon from dead ball situations. So the one thing I would say is if we're gonna if we're gonna sit back, be very careful about how they advance their players and don't 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 go into the game um as physically minded. I know that playing physical is part of the Aussie DNA, but you give Sweden a dead ball, <laughs> Amanda Illestead is going to win the golden boot, or should we call it the golden head, as a freaking centre-back in this tournament. Um, and that's still very much on the cards with this third-place playoff. So, Cody, um, I, is it wrong of me to say that I don't really care? Because, because to me, like the legacy of the tournament and that sort of element of how the Matildas have performed, like, I feel like that conversation is sort of already being had. If they take home the third place playoff, will it actually be like? Let me ask you: Will, will it be impactful? I think, in a way, I, I think it's more from a sense of, and like we have an opportunity to finish our World Cup campaign on a winning note, and that's very rare for someone that doesn't actually go and win it. It's it's the only way that that can possibly happen. I think. If we go out of this tournament off the back of two losses, I don't know what that does for the legacy of the tournament. What What's done is done already. People are inspired. It's fantastic. It's great. But I think it'd just it'd make it that little bit better if we can end the tournament on a winning note. And for that reason, I actually wouldn't mind seeing, at the very least, a near full-strength squad. I don't know. I, I still feel like we could probably get... Obviously, some players need a rest. I feel like Carpenter probably needs a stint on the sideline. She looks buggered. Bring Grant in. Give Grant that experience. There's also the fact of Lydia Williams. It's possibly going to be her last World Cup campaign. It'd be great to see her give minutes, uh, see her given minutes at her last tournament. And in reality, having her in for Mackenzie Arnold, you're, you're getting a top class keeper replacing a top class keeper. It's not really much difference there. But after that, I'm not sure if I'd want too many changes. Maybe either Gory or KCC gets rested for Wheeler. But other than that, I'd want to see a full strength squad. Um, yeah, proud, proud Powerade ambassador Lydia Williams is, is a good shout, but I think you've just, I think you've just, um, I think you've just sort of proven your own point a little bit moot there. Cause I don't, I, you've basically said, don't, don't rotate the squad and then just rotated a lot of that squad going to so. No, 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 no. Rotate a little bit. I don't want to see wholesale changes. I don't want to see a whole new XI. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, but, but, but to Williams, me, Williams, Grant, and maybe a midfielder. That's three changes. Yeah, That's not much. Still, you're still talking about three or four changes, there, right? That is still rotation and a, and a significant rotation within the team. So I don't think it's significant. Um, and if you're talking about someone like well, Williams coming in, that's that's you know you're not changing much there. You still got two great keepers. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you're still changing the goalkeeper. Like it's a big fundamental change. <laughs> In, in, I know, I know where you're coming from. I just, I, I don't know. Uh, it'll, it'll really depend on, uh, on whether Tony views the game and wants to win it. And I mean, yeah, look, it, 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 I just think that as a third place playoff, naturally, we only have one reference point for something like this happening. Well, actually, no, we have a few. We have, um, Brazil after they got smacked 7 1 
playing at home in a men's world cup. We had Germany in 2006 at a men's world cup playing one. Could you, could you honestly, and even like the bronze medal match at the Olympics, could you honestly tell me off the top of your head, one of those games where you go, Oh yeah, that happened. That really memorable third place game. Okay. No, no. But, and that's, that's where oh, we that's have the opportunity I'm... to make one. We have yeah, the opportunity yeah, to be yeah. a difference. Look, I, I, I don't want to go into a game, not caring. I want to get something out of it. That's probably the main thing I'm trying to say. I'm just, I'm just being a negative Nancy because I literally am experiencing fatigue. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and, no. you know, but well, look, We'll we'll move on from this. I, I feel like you're not happy talking about third place playoff. I want to see us win it. We'll 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 end that conversation there because we do have a whole World Cup to talk about. Still, this isn't another Matildas episode. England ended up going through. They're going to play in a World Cup final. Serena Weigerman's second World Cup final in a row after she led um the Netherlands there four years ago. The fact that they were playing the game against Matildas as well after you could only describe it as a shaky result against Colombia. We haven't actually spoke had the chance to talk about. That result yet. We haven't really spoken about the quarterfinal stage. And Colombia, they've been the story of this tournament, and they really gave it to England in that game as well. It's interesting because we sat here last week and we spoke about, oh, Colombia's going to have no chance in this game for the simple fact that they're going to go and attack England because they're not a nation that's going to want to sit back. And they went ahead first, and next thing you know, 11 players are sitting deep in their own half. Complete opposite to what we thought was really going to take place. It almost worked for them, but England, at the end of the day, whether they're on form or not, they're just too good, aren't they? I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, I don't, can't remember. We were obviously we were there together watching it at the hotel in Brisbane. I don't remember if I said this to you at the time, and I apologise if I didn't. We were both busy celebrating and a bit intoxicated anyway. But I remember sort of thinking, instinctively thinking, when Colombia had the lead, this doesn't really matter. England are world-class. They'll find a way to win, and, and they did. As for Colombia sitting back, <laughs> look, they still attacked the game a fair bit in the first half. They still had the lead in the game. So I don't think they stripped back on any of those values. They actually, you know, most in like, you know how like the, the never say die, do anything, anything in your means to win kind of South American mentality? I think that's where the, the sitting back factored in. But Colombia, you know, they, they still, they were one of the most awesome teams to watch in the tournament. What they are doing for women's football in a part of the world where it is still considered, you know, quite, uh, you know, a second rate thing and, and quite taboo even in, in, in some cultural parts of, uh, of South American culture. You know, they're awesome. They're, they're awesome. And, and, um, that was probably the ending that, uh, that they would have liked to have been scripted before the tournament anyway. So. Fair play to them. England's class just just about sort of came through that, and we've already spoken about England's impact in that in that Matildas game anyway. So, yeah, you know, it's it's one where reflecting on it, you know, how sometimes after a football tournament, after a tournament in any sport, it can be the cricket World Cup, the rugby World Cup, if you really wanted to, but there are some games where at the time you kind of think going into it, this is going to bring about a really special vibe. And then by like a month or so after, you're like, yeah, that was actually kind of quite forgettable. I think the routine nature with which England won the game means that whole side of the draw, even with Colombia beating Jamaica so much, that entire side of the draw is just going to go down in history as a bit, mm -hmm. yeah, it's exactly what we expected to happen and it happened. Yeah, no, I don't remember you saying that to me particularly, but I do remember me saying that to someone else. So 
No, maybe telepathically. You know what they say. Great, great minds think alike. So I'll give you that one. But yeah, look, England, it, it did end up being a little bit routine despite an early scare. It was an unfortunate mistake that got them their first goal. But then, you know, England do what England does, get themselves ahead going into the Australia game as well. They really turned it on. That was probably their best before. You'd, you'd argue that that's probably their best game of the tournament. And, you know, it's, it, it's a stage where they've got to set up, step, step up. It's a semi-final. You're not going to scrape, scrape through a semi-final. You're not going to go through that again. So the way they played against Australia, you know, they showed why they could possibly go on to win it. A lot of attention in Australian media about how they were playing as well. And just about every person that I've spoken to that's probably newer to football and hasn't really watched much of it before, all saying the same thing about England and very, very rough, very, very brash style of play. Look, we've probably seen more football than the average person that's only just been introduced to it. Did you see anything wrong with how England were playing? Because look, I'll be honest, where I was sitting in the game, I was in the Matilda's active area. We were having a jolly old time. I don't know if I saw the full extent of what England were doing. So from someone that was watching on a screen that really got a proper view of the game, what do you think? It's a non-issue. <laughs> it's a non-issue. I'm, I'm not. I'm not elaborating further. It's a non-issue. I think I saw one tackle where that someone went studs up on Sam Kerr, and there was another stage where I think she got kicked in the head. But other than that, like it just looked like proper football challenges. It wasn't anything different to what I've seen the Matildas doing an average day. To be fair, it's a non-issue. <laughs> well, I'm glad we got that out of the way quickly because the one person I really want to talk about from this England side, I want to give her as much time as possible as we can. Serena Wykman. Four major finals she's been at in a row. I don't, I can't remember if she was in charge of the Team GB team, I'll be honest. But you're talking 2019 World Cup final, 2017 Euros final. Sorry, I got that mixed up. 2022 Euros final. Now 2023 World Cup final. She's won both the Euros final, fell short in the World Cup to the remnants of a Golden Age USA team. She has a really, really good opportunity to cement her legacy as one of the greatest female coaches of all time, in the same sense that you probably put Dolboski when he won three major tournaments in a row. And the fact that she's been able to do it across two national teams, the fact that she's gone from the Dutch side to a new culture in England, obviously England's vastly different from the rest of Europe as well, really taken football, women's football in that country to new heights eclipsing what the men haven't been able to do for decades since their World Cup win in 1966. You know, that that aspect of it as well has to be just as special, doesn't it? Look, at the end of the day, um, Dutch total football is is something that, uh, you know, had a big impact on a lot of people. And uh, for a young Serena Wiegmann, the dream and the passion was always there for her to be a face of the rise of professionalism in football in, in Europe and in the world is is a massive testament. Furthermore, yeah, I think I think you've really, really hit the nail on the head of this woman's legacy for the fact that England, never in their lives, you know, never in any any in any tournament situation in in any sort of footballing context that I can remember, have ever appointed a foreign manager, and it's 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 never gone down well. Like especially on the men's side, okay, but they just they don't perform well with foreign managers, and there is a very deeply rooted systemic issue behind that. Well, it's not not an issue, it's just a cultural factor. But, you know, yeah, Wiegmann's come in and, and the women have, have gone and, and done what they've done at the Euros. You know, Great Britain obviously faltered to uh, Australia at the Olympics. You know, a, lot, a lot of stuff like that where, you know, there was actually something to really build from there and, and she did it. 
And, you know, I, I want to sit there and say when you compare, and I'm, I'm look, Cody, I, I know that you have a real investment in this and you are passionate about it with, with your Spanish roots and everything. But if you compare a Savina Wiegmann with England to the Jorge Vilda shit show, who do you want to win this World Cup? And the answer is obviously England, right? Um, no, 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 no. Wiegmann's... Look, I'll go through that part later, but coaches, if you compare that, maybe a different story. Countries, come on, man. I, I am Spanish at the end of the day. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but, but I'm, I'm talking about the individual and the individual at the heart of the impact to the game. I think it's more a sense of what the average person would want to see, really, because you look at how people are going into this game. No one wants to see Jorge Vilda holding a World Cup trophy, but the the journey Serena Vigman's been on, how could you not want her to see see her achieve that? I think that's it's something that's truly special. And, you know, look, I've already gone pretty deep into a legacy. You'd know by now this this is something special, considering, like you said, a foreign manager coming into England transforming that women's program and really taking them, pushing that barrier to the point where they're holding a trophy. That's something special. That's something that can't be taken away. And if she crowns her with a World Cup, that's not just her winning England World Cup. That's her winning England two major tournaments in a row. That is truly special. It's it's uncharted. It's historic. It's, you know, it's beautiful. It's it's everything you, you want to see from that aspect. But you've also, you're also correct in that it's England winning a World Cup. Oh, gross. <laughs> Okay, you know, that part I don't care about. I'm more thinking, oh, Spain, yay, heritage. But anyway, that's besides, besides the point. <laughs> One last point on Serena Weigman. There's actually been links come out today, and I'm getting my information here through Dubzone. Apparently, she's been linked to the, the England men's job. I don't know if you've seen this. Okay. I don't know what you think of it. Okay. But, okay, so you make your point, I'll make mine. When, when, you, when you've gone on a bit of that spiel about her and her impact on the game, just there was that little little sprinkle in my mind that went is is she going to be involved in a men's program sooner rather than later is is she world class enough to the point where that happens and you know wouldn't that just be so special england of england have just had the first female senior manager appointed at forest green rovers i'm not have you heard about that yeah but didn't they Relieve her from that part of the job before they even ended up playing the game. Um, I feel like my point there was that a club appointed a female senior manager. We didn't need to necessarily get into the weeds of what happened. But I don't know. I'm just saying, like, yeah, they appointed her, but it didn't really end up coming for much. Like, it, it, Look, it's not, it's I, not I the same know, as actually seeing okay, them on I the sideline. <laughs> I didn't know when I said that. I don't know, man. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where, I don't, I'm not, I can see what point you were trying to make out of that. Like the England's, you know, a club in England's taking that step to a point, put a female manager in the hot seat, and, and however that, short it was. happening from the perspective of female managers getting their foot in the door. Being yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, if, even if it's a case of Serena Wiegmann sort of being more involved at the English FA where she's not the senior boss straight away. But is obviously still being involved in both programs initially, and then works her way through the point where, you know, there's photos of her fist bumping Marcus Rashford or something like that. Like, you know, like yeah, let's let's see it, let's see it, let's let's go for it. Um, because I I feel like that is the sort of thing where 
you know, we're already just talking about that that groundbreaking effect of of the rise of professionalism in, in women's football, and it would just be it would be a really wonderful thing to see. I've got a question I want to pose to you. And look, take reputation, take finances, take all that aspect, take the gender aspect out of it, even though it's going to be central to what I say. If I had to ask you what job looks more attractive between the lionesses and the three lions, what 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 job would you be picking? If you had to take uh, out the fact that obviously taking the England men's job would probably pay significantly a lot more. No, no, it's not even it's not even that. It's not even that. It's you you just you know that the three lions are a bigger team. You just you just objectively like it is I'd go as far as to say Male or female, the English Lions are like one of the three biggest brands in all of the history of the sport, and in fact, sport in general, as an extension of football being the world's most popular sport. It has got to be, and you're right, gender doesn't matter, but for that exact reason, it has to be one of the most desired jobs in all of it. You, you don't say no. <laughs> you don't say no and say, I've just won England a World Cup. The fact that you've just won England a World Cup in a in you know a hypothetical scenario in three days' time—that's exactly why. If you're appointed to be a part of that men's program, you take that because because holy shit! If a female manager, if a female manager starts doing things that someone like a Gareth Southgate has failed to do, we've we've you know we've completed not just that, but a female foreign manager. No, 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 exactly, exactly. We we have. We have achieved something that in our wildest dreams could not have been possible. Um, and, and that's something where, I mean, the, the prospect of that is just a very exciting thing to, to ponder on. It's, it's a big question, but I don't, I don't think there's a comparison between a very successful and a, you know, a growing, uh, strength in the lionesses to be compared with the three lions. It's always going to be the more desirable job. I see what you mean there. Uh, look, personally, I just thought she's got something good going on with the three lions, with the, with the lionesses. If she wins the World Cup, maybe there is a sense of she's achieved everything she could have there. Maybe she does want a new challenge. And what bigger challenge could you ask for than the England men's job? Because that would be a mammoth task. But you've also got, I don't know, I, just, I like the culture around the lionesses a lot more. They seem, you know, I have said the three lions are a little bit more of a likable team than what England are in the past. But this England women's side, you know, we always joke about, oh, well, we want to see England win a World Cup, yada, yada, yada. I, I, I wouldn't mind seeing this England side win a World Cup. I think they're more than deserving of it. And yeah, look, maybe with, Serena with regards to the, the jokes and the banter, I, I would, I, I could be wrong. I know that I'm not wrong, but you're not exactly a rugby union or a cricket fan, right? So you don't really understand where that hatred of England comes from. Well, it's everyone, everyone hates England in football. That's a thing. Like it, it still exists. I'm not saying it from an Australian point of view. I'm saying that more from a world point of view. Yes, I'm not a cricket or rugby union fan, but I still see people have that hatred for England. I maybe just don't hold it as much myself, and I understand that. Yeah, fair, fair enough, fair enough. It's just uh, it's a bit of a cultural thing in this country. Anyway, we've got to move on. Uh, Sweden and Japan. We're going to start there for Sweden's kind of run into where their World Cup runs ended. They had a good game against Japan. You mentioned her before. It started uh, her, between her and Mosevich and that whole Swedish defensive unit. They've been pretty bloody fantastic this tournament to hold out a side like Japan, who are this kind of free-flowing attacking machine. So good tactically as well. For them to really stifle them and push them to a point where 
you know, Japan actually did kind of struggle to create a lot of clear-cut chances in that game. England, uh, not England, we're not talking about England. Sweden's defensive solidarity, as much as maybe it didn't come through as well as what it could have in the Spain game, it's something that really needs to be commended, especially on that quarterfinal performance. You know what I find really interesting, um, in retrospect, talking about Sweden's campaign? In the same way that Japan sort of struck Spain aside with 23% of the ball, the that, that 5-0 thrashing of Italy came about through some very, very strategic play from a very, very important um, set scenario where, to go back on what I was talking about before, they were very good from the, from the dead ball. So they forced that dead ball situation, and they got five goals out of it. Uh, when Sweden played Japan, it was very interesting in that both sides wanted to sort of find a bit of a cheat way around it in the way that they had both successfully done previously. But the game sort of petered out, and I expected it to. I think you'll recall that I said that Sweden would win it fairly, not, not routinely, but you know that, that Sweden wouldn't have a problem with it because they knew to counteract uh, that sort of technical play that Japan do without much of the ball. And they, they did. So the game was a bit of a non-event, but I just found that that uh, that very interesting going into that game, and it was something that when we did our sort of round round of sixteen slash quarterfinals show, kind of wish I'd mentioned that. But again, it's it's just one of those things where you've got to give these things time. You've got to actually give give it time and reflect and and respond to a lot of these things, and um, that's where Sweden's campaign has been such an interesting one. You know, let's not forget, Cody. They started the campaign losing to South Africa at the cake tip. They were losing. <laughs> were losing. And I thought you meant they lost for a sec. I was like, do yeah, you no, not no, remember no, them no, coming no, back? No, 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 no. But but they did they did go down. They did go down in that game, and uh, and there was a, a little bit of an air of you know look at how exciting Group G is going to be. Group G kind of was a non-event because of just how clinical Sweden were. And okay, okay, let, let me just cut you off there because you're talking about Group G being a non-event. Do you not remember South Africa eventually topping two sides that people thought would sweep them aside? Well, yeah, yeah, but but I'm talking okay. I'm talking about the Swedish, the Swedish team, the Swedish perspective on things, um, because because it wasn't as chaotic as Group H, for example, right? So they didn't make the comparison, just yeah. But you're right. Sweden you're still right. came was, out where they was, expected to. Everything yeah. underneath them though was pretty bloody chaotic. Yeah, no, it was. It was. You're right. You're right. Um, y- yeah, I mean. They are a side that actually should, that would they have been in the final? And even considering the crazy scenes that went on against Spain, I mean, they could, could have very well sent that game an extra time. Who knows what realistically would have happened, right? Until their, until their dying moment, um, at the end of that semi final, they fought and they fought hard and they were a very, a very good side, very clinical side, very exciting side. So they're actually, you know, going into a third place playoff. They're a, a pretty tough prospect, prospect. But again, it's just one of those things where, I think they've they've because of the nature of how they have been clinical, they're they're definitely quite underrated as well. Um, and they've they've been a very sort of good team to keep an eye on throughout the tournament, and one that you've got to have a lot of admiration, a lot of respect for for the way that they've found themselves. Um, you know, to to be able to get through playing that style of game. Well, look, you compare that game they're going to play against Australia, where it is going to be kind of two physical sides, two sides that do like their chances in set piece situations. You know, that it's a big strength of Sweden's and looking at that third place playoff, if they can get over the top of Australia in that area, which 
you know, if you had to compare how they shape up, Fleet and probably do shape up that little bit better. Yeah, they would probably be the favourite in that third place playoff. You look at how that compared to Spain, though, where Spain are this really technically refined and technically brilliant team, so fluid and so able to counteract a physical game. You can see why Sweden were that's where their run kind of ended. I think a lot of people would have been surprised if they were the team in the final, considering how good Spain are. And we'll get yeah. that to them in a minute, because I think if there's one thing that kept Sweden in that game, it wasn't more, yeah, look, well, they have been a very solid side defensively this tournament. They gave Spain a lot of chances and a lot more than what they've probably been used to this tournament. And they've gotten a bit lucky in the sense that Spain, in, in a lot of in a lot of games this tournament, Spain haven't really been that clinical this tournament. They've actually, I feel like they probably should have won games by a lot more than what they have. And I cast my mind back to the quarterfinal against the Netherlands. Spain realistically probably should have been up by two or three in the first half. Yeah. You know, I, I, I knew that, yeah, the, the chance creation and, and what you could have expected of the team going forward. It was always going to be one of those things where they, they grew a little bit more and they showed a little bit more. But I also felt that after the Switzerland game, having beaten a side with some pretty bloody good players in it so dramatically, I always felt that Spain didn't actually need to perform at that incredible level and play this beautiful football all the time. They just needed to do what they knew was good enough to win. Does that make sense? Probably should have so, mentioned that Switzerland game when I'm talking about them being clinical. But there, there were a lot of times this, when I'm looking at Spain for a second here. Spain in front of goal probably should have performed a lot better at this tournament. If you look at the Costa Rica game, if you look at maybe even in the Japan game, and then the Netherlands and Sweden games, even in the semi-final, you go back to that. There were a lot of chances, and it wasn't even coming down to Mosevic. It was just coming down to Spain really struggling in front of goal, hit, not hitting the target from very close. It's uncharacteristic, maybe not uncharacteristic for them because they've shown it quite often in this tournament. But that's an aspect where you're going into a final now against England. And if you don't take advantage of those chances, you know very well England's going to go up the other end and score. And I think that's one thing that needs to be spoken about in regards to Spain, where their defensive solidity, they can get caught out pretty poorly if a team's able to attack quickly and they're able to attack you quickly. England have a lot of good players going forward. You're talking about Alessio Russo, um, Elatun, Georgia Stanway going from a little bit deeper. Suddenly now Spain have this prospect of facing England's side that you know, they showed it against Australia. They are, they, are, they are able to switch from defensive attack very quickly and catch teams out. We saw, especially in that third goal, you can argue Australia was fatigued. The point is England was still able to execute it. Spain, I don't know if I'd trust that back line. And I think that's a dangerous pro- prospect going into the final. I think you're really, really talking about something that is going to ultimately decide this World Cup. Because I'm, you know, we know how England sit on the ball and how they really, that playing out of the back effect is enough to just completely drown teams out of games, right? You think back to sort of the Euros when they, they flogged Norway 8-0 or whatever it was and and you just think about the fact that the Matildas had this momentum and they just sort of completely shut it off like nothing was nothing was going on. Football game in Sydney, what are you talking about? And what I, what I find so interesting about this is how clinical Spain are with England sitting back on the ball for so long, that will literally, literally decide this World Cup because they are going to absorb any uh, flair and attacking prowess from Spain in the exact same way Japan did. Obviously, the brand of football, the style of football, the individuals involved, their physical attributes, 
it's com- it's completely different. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying England or anything like Japan, but what I'm saying is they all they all frustrate Spain in that same way. So Spain's response to that and how clinical Spain are that decides this World Cup. It will be interesting because. I'm, and I'm not saying Spain are going to be dominated in this game. I think they probably have the, not the ascendancy, but they'll have, you know, the stats of possession over England. They're not going to dominate the same way, in the same way that they did the Japan game. England will see a lot more of the ball. It will be a little bit tighter in that regard. And Spain won't have the advantage of really being able to suffocate an opponent. So when you nullify the uh, country's biggest attribute, suddenly that they need to look to a plan B. And that's really going to test, you know, probably one of the most hated men in women's football his um, tactical prowess because suddenly he's now not relying on a team of players that are genuinely just some of the best in the world. He's got to get them to really buy into a plan B. And if he can't do that, Spain are in trouble because England, you know, I'd, I'd argue England can win this game with England will probably win this game seeing less of the ball. They can win this game seeing less of the ball. The only way Spain win this game is if they're able to actually convert the chances that they actually create. I know it sounds stupid. I'm, I'm no, no, pulling no, no, a Michael Lowen situation here. You, you bang on. It's I'm pulling, about- I, I know I'm stating the obviously I'm stating it so bad, but considering that's been Spain's biggest flaw this tournament, you know we know Spain are going to create three, four, five clear cut chances. It will happen. Mm. Maybe not in the same way that they do in the other games, but they they'll get their chance. They'll get their, they'll get they'll, they'll something will happen for them, and it will happen on multiple occasions. Yeah. I'd, I'm not sure if I'd fully trust Mary Earp. She's a good goalkeeper in one on one situations, but if you give someone like Bon Matis that base on the edge, I think if there's one thing that Mary Epps has kind of fell to on multiple occasions this tournament is maybe not shots looping over, but shots that's kind of hitting the top corner, anything that's kind of out of her arm span, which, you know, in a way, you, I guess you can't blame her, but Spain do have that advantage where they are able to score from distance. They can be a threat from those sorts of areas. They get a goal early and put England on the back foot, and maybe they come out of this. But if England's able to stifle them and if England's able to handle them in those situations and force Spain into or even for Spain going closer to the goal where surprisingly they struggled more. England could win England probably win this game. Yeah. Yeah. Spain's Spain's final third and their ability in, in attack and their flair, it, it it is definitely something that Jorge Villa as an individual is gonna have to say, these are the moments we attack. This is the plan B to put in place when England have things going their way. And, and this is the key areas where we'll have to proceed and, and do it in such a way where we can be clinical in those areas. And I think the individuals, if you're a, you know, if you're a Hermoso, if you're a Bormati, if you're a Putaeus, your individual view and belief in Vilda's understanding of those clinical moments is what wins the World Cup for Spain. England's ability to bring out those demons in Spain. Uh, win the World Cup for England. I think it's actually very obvious the game we're about to see. And, and I mean, it's a delicious prospect. Of course it is. It's a World Cup final. But, you know, it's, it's actually very obvious for me where that, where that, uh, that, that, that sort of game starts and, and, and ends in that way. And, and I think what is really exciting as well is especially from the Spain attacking front, this tournament ends exactly where it started. New Zealand came out against Norway. With that fire in the belly, they were able to create the chances. They were able to be clinical through Hannah Wilkinson. And Spain are going to have to come out with that tempo and exhibit exactly the same thing. I love how you compared the World Cup final to um, a game where Hannah Wilkinson was able to be 
the winner. I think I think it's just a nice full circle moment seeing it in Australia. You know, we're comparing this to an A League star shining on the world stage. It's 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 quite sentimental. I think I'll use that word. But and I think this is going to be an obvious answer. Who comes out on top? Because honestly, as much as I want, I'd love to see Spain win this World Cup. I I, I think it's going to be England. Yeah. Um. No arguments. I'm I'm just I'm trying to do the sentimental, poetic, you know, big narrative thing, but we sort of already covered it when we were talking about Serena Vigrid, right? So, yeah, <laughs> you know, Spain Spain will be able to take their chances and they will be able to to win the game, but are England just that bit better? Are England going to be able to dictate things on their own terms just that bit better? Are they going to be Euro and uh, World Cup double champions? You know, I, I, I can see the narrative a lot more than I can Spain winning. Um, and I think what's funny is you, you go into the realms of the internet and people are going, well, we don't want England to win anything. And they're going, oh, well, we don't want Jorge Vilda to be rewarded. Um, and in that sense, the uh, this final was a bit of a joke. But But from a very serious point of view. I think um I think an England victory is what this World Cup has, has sort of deserved in the years in the lead up, you know, the the stories that have unfolded about the USA's downfall downfall and Europe's rise. The one team that was always at the heart of that with the rise of Europe was obviously England through the NWSL and it was also Australia through Sam Kerr and being the host nation, yes, but a lot of people said to me at the time when we knew it was going to be an England Australia semi final Everyone's gone to me and said, not only are the narratives on their side, but the winner from that semi-final is probably going to go into the World Cup final as the favourite and probably going to be the World Cup winner. Um, so on that metric alone, with with what's played out on England's side, I think you can just about bet that, that they're going to go on and, and, and win the, uh, the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup. You found a narrative in the end, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, my my brain is like that sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> uh, very poetic with your words, Matt. Um, look, just to kind of wrap up this podcast, obviously this is going to be the last Women's World Cup edition we do with Front Page Football. Hopefully you've all enjoyed it. I want to get a little bit sentimental for a sec. Kind of reflect on the tournament for what it was. Um, just two aspects of it. First of all, some of the players that have stood out for you, whether it be someone kind of breaking through a world-class player, you know, really reaching their heights and taking their nation forward. Uh, what What... Individual performances have stood out for you. Um, Ramona Backman, footy brain. Linda Caicedo, footy brain. Ghislaine Shabak, footy brain. I didn't know that. I didn't know that one existed, but it did. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, oh, you're getting me on my feet. Probably some of the South African players. Um, I mean, you've you've probably got to say Steph Catley for a leadership with Sam Kerr not around. Certainly, had a Wilkinson. I think she's probably been one of, if not the best left back in this one tournament. One of the best, yeah, probably a team of the tournament left back um, yeah. contributor. Arhe Borges for Brazil. Well, wild. <laughs> uh, no one really knew who she was prior to her massive showing against Panama and Adelaide. Um, and she really, she really stood. She's up probably someone I feel bad we didn't get to see more of in this tournament, at least in a final stage. Yeah. I really feel like if the tournament progressed, we could have seen her, you know, really fill those boots and be yeah, like. Yeah, but a, do you know who we did see? 
The Swabby Sisters, baby. <laughs> yes. I'm surprised you didn't bring them up straight away in all the honesty. best centre-back pairing in the history of the game. They're fucking world class. Unbelievable. Oh, um, my God. I will never forget. You know how many people I've shown that full clip of you just kind of going <laughs> on about them and, like, how passionate you were in that instance? It, it helped that I had probably just come off seeing Jamaica in person and were really fucking rolled up about it. I'm not going to lie. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, you know, there's, there's just, there's so much. And, and the thing is, Cody, right? What I really love about it is we're already pretty passionate about the women's game and we obviously watch a lot of football and, and we, you know, did you, I don't know if you watched, um, the old, old roads lead down under documentary on FIFA plus, but there was already a lot where we were quite familiar with it going into the tournament. And this is the beauty of a world cup. We still learned so much. We still experienced so much. Um, yeah, I think, look, I'm in a position where, you know, look, outside of the Elegant and WSL, I probably don't watch as much women's football as what I'd want to. I think this World, after this World Cup, I'm, especially in, um, La Liga Feminine, uh, the, uh, Frau Bundesliga, there's, there's definitely leagues that I definitely want to see more of at the very least. Obviously, the hard part is, you know, access to it. Um, it's very hard to watch women's football in Australia, as I learned last year, trying to watch the Frau Bundesliga every now and then because there was an Aussie playing in it in Anamagraf. But there's even the Ligun, I'd love to see more of that. We um actually get to see Ellie Carpenter at club level. I'd love to see someone like Optusport or Paramount actually try and make a play for some of these leagues, even if they show one or two games a week. Just, you know, something to kind of tickle the fancy of people that at the very least want to see Australians, you know? Paramount Plus have invested in the bloody Saudi Pro League. But why would I want to watch, you know, Ronaldo or Mane when I can watch Ellie Carpenter? It's it's a weird comparison. I know that some football normies are going to sit there and go, "What the fuck are you on about?" I want to watch my Aussie. I want to watch Aussies play. Yeah, so if they're willing to invest in those leagues, bring some normies aren't normies aren't getting up at fucking three forty five to watch El Nasser anyway. Let's, let's just let's just be <laughs> honest about it. Ten ten play have got nothing from that deal. They've just just wasted their money. And I think you know something that something if you go way back when I'm getting way too into the nation, I'll try and make this uh, try and make this very swift point because it's a weird one. But I remember back in the day when one sport existed in Australia. Do you remember one sport? Not a clue. Okay. One sport was basically Channel 10 tried to make a 24-7 sports channel for about two or three years. And they paid to show every single Milwaukee Bucks NBA game for the season because they had an Australian playing for them. So why would a similar deal now on 10 play not work for Leon's games in, in, the, in the women's uh, football? That's You'd get a lot of people that would get up to watch Ellie Carpenter. Yeah, Ellie Carpenter is a very, 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 very popular sportswoman. Of course, people would actually, people within the niche, people who've just really taken a liking to it, I reckon they would be waking up for those games for sure. One thing I've noticed with this tournament, and it comes from just seeing the reaction on social media, you know, leading into it, there's, uh, there's an argument on how you grow the fan base of women's sport. And, you know, some people say you've got to tap into you know, football fans are ready and try and get them to, you know, follow the women's side of it. I know a lot of people have said, no, instead you should probably look down the route of um, getting women's sports fans and going, hey, here's football, here's another chance to really support women in sport. That second one's probably the one that should be leaned to a little bit more, and I'm surprised the APL or other football heads haven't actually tried that. Looking at, and this is purely off social media interactions that I've had recently, looking at who's inter in who's the target market now for women's football, and in particular, the Matildas, I'd argue it's anyone with a pulse in a way. 
so many people have kind of jumped on the bandwagon for the Matildas. And, you know, we talk about, oh, there's 11 million people watching them. Uh, there's a study that came out with Hunter Fuyak that um, said it actually was closer to 17 million when you include the live sites, the pubs and all that sort of stuff. I've had a look at some, like, I've had a look at the demographic of people that have, you know, interacted with content in regards to the Matildas on different um social media apps. There's no clear cut demographic. There's no style of, there's no characteristic that combines them. There's so many different people that have just been tied together by this Matilda story. And if you can market to them and make sure that they just understand where the Matildas are playing and how to get behind them, even between World Cup years, that side's only going to grow. The hype won't end. Yeah, sure, it won't be 17 million people watching them all the time. But if you get a fraction of that, if you get 17 million, you get 10% of that. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Math isn't my strong suit nowadays. That's still 1.7 million, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Got my math right, right? Yeah. Look, Cody, I, I think all of this rhetoric is a little bit overstated. We, we have just seen, well, firstly, when, when the Socceroos won the Asian Cup, Ange Postacoglu famously went on to say that that didn't have the impact that he wanted, and it was he was you know, it was one of his sort of big big regrets. What what more could he have done to sort of grow the game during that Asian Cup period? You look at the fact that the Socceroos did what they did in Qatar, and we we were all up at three four in the morning for those games. Did the game? We know what happened with Danny Townsend in the APL, and that that's a whole another conversation about how the APL actually take this momentum and push the game up. But I just get the feeling that a bandwagon is exactly that football will convert fans in a very sentimental and a very different way. This is the logic of the great Ellie Mengham in that in that football grows people in its own unique way. It's not something where we can actually look at a circumstance like this and go, well, what, what do the administrators need to do to capture all these people in the game? I, I, I would actually say the lasting impact of this tournament is to not constantly think like that because it's not something that you can actually... You know, the people who promote the game can't actually sit there and physically make people get up into it. The, the passion and the love, it has to be more authentic. It has to be more, it has to be sort of matured from something where you were, you were bored once upon a time. And just like, just like young kids in the, in the nineties who didn't have football as an influence, they turned on SBS, they saw footage of the World Cup and they were like, Oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. And it, and, and really, well, that's what people to, are doing now. Yeah, 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 but, but this is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. Let them, let them be the converts. Let's, that's what, that's, that's what I think. I don't think this is a thing where we need administrators to go, hey, this is what we're going to do this, this, and this to really build on the World Cup. I think there's people that have genuinely had their minds changed, and it may not be to football. It may just purely be to Matildas. There's going to be a lot of people that follow the Matildas that, you know, maybe don't have the slightest clue of how football works. But the longer they go on to watch, the more likely they're going to actually understand the game a little bit. But there's so many people that I've seen that don't even look like they have an interest in sport. Like these are the t- people that I'm talking about that have interacted with the Matildas or interacted with Matildas content on social media. These people are sitting there going, we want more. We don't want to wait another four years to watch this team. We want to watch them now. Well, and it doesn't doing, matter if the administrators point. do something to keep them reeled in. There's going to be other people that try and keep them reeled in to make sure those people know what's going on. And as long as there's good people working within the game, this game will continue to build, and these people won't jump off the bag bandwagon anytime soon. You've got to think about it as well. Yeah, and you no, know this very I, well. It's I, happening I, I in get, your backyard. Their next games are in two months. It's not that long until we get to see these girls play again. 
you're talking about those uh, Olympic qualifiers? Yeah, and look, it may not be the most high-profile games, but I think no, there's no, still no, people not. that are like, this is... this is our chance to watch the Matildas. <laughs> those games are already selling out at record levels for that, that sort of game. I... Like, I don't even know what else to tell you as someone that's in WA and as someone that's going to experience the whole thing. Those, there are people who just see that it's the Matildas and they've bought all these incredible tickets and they're, they're literally, there's been, I mean, obviously it's the biggest piss take of all time, but there's already sort of articles and talk of, well, maybe we should move these games to Optus Stadium. We're yeah, playing no, Iran, no. Chinese Taipei and the freaking Philippines. We are not moving them to an oval stadium for goodness sake. But what it does speak about is demand. People just people just want to see the Matildas, and we are literally going to be getting, you know, ten, fifteen, dare I even say twenty thousand people at these freaking games. Uh, and, and you'll and sell that. St- I'm, I don't. I think that's understatement. You'll sell that stadium out three times over. For for Iran, for the the Matildas against Iran. I, I, I I'm, I'm telling you now, Matt. We will sell that stadium three times over. <laughs> be cold, be cold. But again. I think we can differentiate the substantial, authentic sort of brand of growing a love for football that I'm talking about with people who just freaking love our national teams and who just really freaking love seeing the, the soccerism tilt us all the time. I think that that still is a very different growth. Um, it's a different I, growth, I, and it I, may I'm not be board. what our intention was, but I think that's still something that we're going to see come out of this World Cup. Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm on board. I'm on board with what you're saying. I still think that. A big part of the conversation from specifically an independent media and a football media perspective can be really overstated sometimes. And I think in Australian football, that's our favourite thing. We love to overstate the impact of everything. Oh, look at how bad these attendance figures are. We're overstating things. Oh, well, look how incredible, you know, the certain impact of certain things that are going on at boardroom level in the AFC and the impact of Asia. And Asia's this really growth corridor. Unfortunately, it's overstated. You know, things like this where we, we just hold such a, such a weird view of the world that doesn't actually really exist because we're just so encapsulated by ourselves and our own product. No, nah, but look, before this tournament, did you expect that in a World Cup semi-final we were going to have 17 people watching the Matildas? No. No, of course. No, of course not. And you can't overstate uh, this impact. Like, that, that's impact right there. That's something that's already yeah. transcended beyond our wildest dreams. So how is it... Uh, uh, wild claim to say that the Matildas are going to sell out HBF Park for three different games, no matter who the opponent because is. Because they're not very high-profile games, Cody. And, and, Think about and it, these they, fans they, that are coming in, they don't care. They just want to watch the Matildas. No, no, no. I know, I know. I know, but just like just like my my other, you know, hypocritical argument that I've made previously, right, I, I still think there is an air of, I'm someone that constantly identifies with the Matildas and the stockers and I love them, but, but uh, there's still going to be this element of like this is just some random game in the middle of September even if it is to technically qualify for the Olympics I just I, I don't know I, it's a conversation that I think we should be we should be having maybe a bit closer to the date I, I don't know but look on on the actual impact of it okay because yeah there's I'm too overwhelmed with emotion to the point where I want to get away from it when I talk about this fatigue that I'm feeling a big part of it is, is is me just actually needing to sit back and reflect. And for that, you know, I want to do what I did for our Men's World Cup show and sit here and, and give you this, like, years-long speech and dedication to the game. But the fact of the matter is, and I even said this prior to the tournament, it's actually too big. It's it's too big, and I'm too tired, and there has been too much of this culminating all at once 
to the point where I cannot bring myself emotionally to the point where I can summarize all of what we're feeling. And that's just the reality of the situation. Yeah, look, I think looking back on this in a month, maybe even two, it will be really interesting to see where our kind of mindsets are at that point. But right now, you know, I don't get to say this very often with football in Australia because it does have a knack for shooting itself in the foot. But I am really hopeful for the future. Not Maybe not necessarily for the future of Australian football. I don't know how much this is going to translate into, you know, a successful A-League women's. For all we know, you know, look, at the end of the day, if we get average crowds of 3,000 this season, that's already a massive bonus. I'd, I'm not sure if we'll actually get there. I reckon maybe that interest will kind of peter out. But if there's not, if something, if there's something that is going to be long lasting, it's our nation's love for the Matildas. I think that part's going to stick. Yeah, exactly. And I think the growth of women's sport and women's football and the rise of Europe really finally seeing the value in women's football is the outstanding legacy of the tournament. So, you know, from a, from a host nation perspective, look, let's not forget that New Zealand hosted games and had their own legacy. Um, Jitka Klimkovas gave a very, 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 very emotional speech. And, and I gotta be honest with you, it, it went completely under the radar. And I feel really bad for everyone in New Zealand, especially the friends that I have, very dear friends that I have in the New Zealand football community, because, because they kind of got shat on by the Matildas, you know, after they won that Canada game. And, uh, you know, I was in Melbourne the night before. And I, and I just remember sitting around thinking like, like, why doesn't it feel like something really significant happened? Like I'm, I'm, I remember sitting there watching the footage of, of Jitka Klimkova and just thinking like, the, like what just happened is absolutely huge for football in New Zealand. Why does it not feel significant? And it's because the very next night, the Matildas went and beat Canada 4-0 and it was just, it was just drowned upon. But, but that is, that is also something that I'd like to speak, speak to as well. And look. Let's let's not forget something else. Football as the world game is is always going to be so so empowered by its ability to bring people together, no matter what. When I saw Zambia make their World Cup debut, I happened to be at the fan site. I was pretty much spending every day of the tournament there, right? And I was sat next to a family a man, his wife, and one of their young children. They were Zambians, and they had their flags and their scarves, and they were decked out. And to be honest with you, that the fan sites, it was a very different audience, so it was never going to be the full wholesome vibe, the full sort of blending of culture in that way. But I just distinctly remember a really, really good save that the Zambian keeper made in like the third minute. And this kid and his dad, their instinctive response was to look at me, give me the brightest smile ever, and they both reached over and gave me a high five. And that moment will stick with me forever because it was the one moment where the fan zone, the the FIFA-made fan zone, actually gave that wholesome vibe to me that only football can bring. And and that's ultimately... I'm going to do it again. <laughs> you know what was coming. <laughs> the theme of the ball is where I finished with the Men's World Cup, and it's what I feel like doing here. For Australian football, as I've said, the story and the narrative is just a bit its just a bit too big. I cannot surmise those feelings. But what I can tell you is that football, unlike any game in the world, yeah, 
we've come all across this, all across the oceans, as the ball was so rightfully named. We went on our own journey, you know, from women's football in Africa being grown through the growth of someone like Ashley Plumter in Nigeria, being a white minority Nigerian from Leicester. We had Morocco. I mean, where do you even begin with that? The first player to wear the hijab, a player from the Arab world to, you know, step up and, and be absolute trailblazers for an entire region of the planet. Uh, and for girls in Morocco to look around and go, oh my God, women can do this. I mean, where do you even begin with the impact of that? That night in Perth, seeing them just run wild. I refused to pull out my phone and film it. I just, I had to take that moment in for myself. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. Someone like Linda Casado, she is going to be in advertisements. She is going to be, you know, the poster girl for everything in Colombian culture for very long time to come, especially at her age. And especially if they win the rights for 2027, should they choose to bid again, Linda Casado is just going to become an absolute rock star. As for North America, the downfall of the US and Canada is the sad reality of the situation. Women's football is global now. It's global. You're not, you know, you're not going to be the big kahunas anymore. We've stopped you now in Europe. Hopefully Spain get their shit together should they win the World Cup. We've spoken enough about England. We know that the Norways and the Swedens and the Germanys and the Denmark will always keep building the game and loving the game. And I've already covered half the globe now. What about Japan? Everyone fell in love with Japan. Everyone understood the Japanese brand of football has finally arrived and it arrived through the women's team. The men's team didn't put, didn't just put them on the map. It was the women. The women were going to be the ones to go on and surprise the world and shock the world and win the World Cup. And where does that leave us? But in Oceania. Here. At the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> For Hannah Wilkinson to step up and have her moment at Eden Park. A Melbourne City prod, a Melbourne City prodigy, a woman who loves her graffiti art, you know, just the most incredible character at heart. And she stood up and she put New Zealand on the map. And then there's what we experience in Australia with over 50% of the country tuning in to watch our games. The experience of travelling to Melbourne and Brisbane and Sydney and Adelaide and Perth and seeing our cities become football, football cities. To see the growth of the game, to see people just be so at one with our national team. Only football can do that, and that's it. Look around. No, no other sport, no other cultural movement, nothing will bring these countries and these people what we've just done in the last month. And that for me, that for me is the legacy of this tournament because nothing will ever bring us that joy and that passion and that love quite like what football does. You almost made me cry there, buddy. Hopefully, look, I, I probably couldn't sum that better, that, sum that up better myself. And I, I don't know if we can continue. I think that that's where we've got to end it. That's pretty much all we had anyway, but well, that's, that's honestly a beautiful note to end it on. And like I always say, Matt, you do have a wonderful way with words. Anyway, look, that is going to be the end of it for everyone that's tuned in for the um, World Cup series that we've done. Hope you guys have enjoyed it. Hope you guys have enjoyed mine and Matt's um, analysis and, you know, a little bit of banter around the tournament. Make sure you're following Front Page Football on the socials, uh, Facebook, Twitter, 
LinkedIn, Instagram. I believe the Twitter name is Front PG Football. I do apologize, Christian. I have had a brain fart. Uh, TikTok as well. Make sure you're checking out our website as well. Whole lot of good content coming out on that, including, you know, you hear the Matt's, you hear Matt's emotion in his voice. There's been some, some very, very emotional articles in that as well, including a recent piece of Steve Darby, former Matilda's coach. Um, that's, yep. That's basically all we have time for. I've been Cody Ojeda. I've been joined by Matt Olson. I'd ask if Matt has anything to add, but I think he's just about said everything he needs to say. I don't know. Matt, do you want to have, add anything else? Woo! Ah. Oh my god! <laughs> You're an idiot! You're an idiot! <laughs> you did a, you did a perfectly beautiful spiel, and then you follow up with that. Uh, World Cup crazy, bro. There we go. That's better. I've been Cody Ojeda. I've been joined by Matt Olson. That has been our World Cup special. Hope you've all enjoyed it. You'll have us back on the wavelengths again when front page dub resumes, which should be hopefully very very soon. A-League Women's does start in early October. We'll be back before then. But until then, bye for now.